Hier komen wij in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast and uh, my name is Rose Ward and Liam Ward is with me Mm -hmm. as well who um, does a lot of behind the scenes trying to make sure that the tech is good so that you can (laughs) hear this with nice clarity. So thank you, Liam, for your efforts on that. Pleasure. Um, Okay. This is an episode I really personally wanted to have because um, I have been feeling very much uh, like this federal election campaign in particular is making me even more convinced um, to be an active and organised revolutionary socialist because it's so terrible, um, with the honourable exception, of course, of the Victorian socialists, which um, we have on a previous episode if you want to hear about them uh, and who you can vote for in Victoria. But I've got Ellie um, and Louise, who are both uh, editors of Red Flag Newspaper on, because I thought they would be good candidates to talk about the shit show of the federal election and why it makes them want to smash capitalism as well. So um, welcome back to the podcast, both of you. Uh, Ellie, let's start with you. Is this more of a right-wing shit show than usual, or um, am I just getting older and more cynical? No, I mean... Uh, personally, I think it's pretty difficult to remember back to a time when any election in Australia was particularly inspiring, but I think you're right in that this one is shaping up to be particularly dire. Um, like, first think of the two candidates we've got on offer. Scott Morrison, hated as the guy who fucked off to Hawaii while the country burnt, absolute bigot, basically a climate sceptic, evangelical right-winger, but then the so-called opposition's not really that much better. Albanese, I think, undeservedly gets a bit of left cred because he's from the you know formal left faction of the Labor Party. But since 2019, when he became the leader, he's just gone out of his way to prove that the Labor Party is as pro-business as the Liberals. His way through enormous tax cuts for the wealthy. Uh, and is offering nothing of any substance uh, in this election campaign. So on almost every issue of substance, there is total agreement between the two major parties. And this is sometimes heralded as a wonderful thing, bipartisanship in politics. But what it means is we have two major parties vying to lead the country who are both openly committed to the depraved priorities of Australian capitalism. Like we we published an article last week, I think, in Red Flag following the leaders debate uh, by Mick Armstrong that described it as a Tweedledum and Tweedledee election, which I think is really, really accurate. Uh, we know we're living through a time of mounting and terrible crises. There's the pandemic, the climate crisis, now the cost of living, you know, war in the Ukraine and so on. Uh, But both parties are going to not only do nothing uh, to help with any of that, but they'll make all of it worse. So, you know, what's shaping up to be the big issues in this election? One is militarism, Australia's God-given right to dominate the Solomon Islands, dominate the Pacific Islands. 
Both are talking about increasing Australia's military spending, renewing their commitment to turning back boats carrying refugees, and then nothing at all to deal with the very real problems uh, that lots of people are facing. So, yes, a particularly terrible right-wing election. Yeah, and my theory is that neither of them, neither ScoMo or um, Albo want to actually win. I just heard um, Albanese on, on the radio this morning. It's Thursday the 5th of May when we're recording this, talking to Virginia Trioli on um, ABC Melbourne, and she said, what's your um, – What's your aim for this election? He said, oh, I just want to be competitive. Like, what? You don't want to win the fucking election. It's just so <laughs> pathetic. And, um, and the Liberals just want to tear each other apart and get it over with. So, uh, yeah, it's a shit show. So I reckon we should talk about some of the things um, that they're not really talking about properly or that, that um, indicate, I think, some of the ways in which whoever you – uh, vote for really, um, we still need to smash capitalism. So, um, Louise, I've really found the use of this term, the cost of living, one of those sort of um, uh, telling turns of phrase that capitalism throws up, like work-life balance is another one of these classic things that's very um, uh, sort of a ghoulish thing to me, I think. Um that basically, if you can't afford the cost of living, the cost of living is going up, then um, you can't live. Like living costs something under capitalism. Do you have uh, what do you have to say about this one? Like, is there a more revolutionary approach? Do you think if we lived in a socialist society, that living would cost you something? Um, well, no. I mean, ideally, we should live in a society where what we collectively produce is distributed rationally based on what people need to maximise human health and happiness. That's not the society we live in, um, in case anyone hasn't noticed. Um, and yes, the day-to-day -day costs associated with living are going up and that creates a real insecurity for people and disproportionately poor people. Um, but I think one of the biggest problems here and something that isn't talked about as much as it should be is the low wages growth that is unnecessarily exacerbating the problem and real wages in Australia have been stagnant for well over 10 years but especially since 2013 um, they've been going backwards rapidly um, and the pandemic has accelerated that because there's been caps on for um, public sector wages which tend to grow better than private because the high rate of unionisation have gone backwards even more than um, the private sector because there's been caps on wages growth, arbitrary caps imposed by state and federal governments um, as a ludicrous pandemic measure. Um, and there's no reason why wages need to be so low. Like there is, I mean, since at least 2017, the Reserve Bank has been arguing publicly that wages need to go up. The government, the Liberal government forecasts um, much higher wages growth than what, what is real to boost up their budget, um, you know, their, their revenue numbers. Um, the Australian Business Council does not oppose, you know, recognises that wage growth is too low. Uh, there's a clear opening for the unions to demand higher wages but that's not what we see on the ground, even though we have Sally McManus, who is well known for saying that bad laws should be broken and, and you know, having a more bolshie 
in rhetoric approach to standing up for workers, we have seen no laws of any consequence being broken throughout her tenure at the Australian Council of Trade Unions. And we've seen wages go backwards and we've seen a continued decline in the amount of industrial action and days on strike, um, which has proved disastrous. And it means workers are in an even more vulnerable position as prices go up and bosses you know, opportunistically raise prices in the current context. Um, and yet there's so much evidence that if workers were to fight for better wages, there'd be support, like the nurses that have struck in New South Wales, the teachers that are on strike in New South Wales yesterday, these are all overwhelmingly um, supported because people recognise that the people, workers are living under these tremendous pressures. Um, and really, like, the, the unions have, have not demonstrated any will to break laws. They've demonstrated a rock-solid commitment to what has become the one and only iron law of trade unionism in Australia today, which is that Labor must be elected above all else. And I think it adds to people's cynicism that the unions, rather than taking this historic opening to really push up wages, to rebuild fighting unions, to get workers out on strike in a way that, you know, it's much harder for all the usual um, the usual organisations and figures to slam them because everyone sort of agrees there should be higher wages growth, rather than taking this historic opportunity to rebuild fighting unions and give people a taste of what it actually takes to raise wages, which is getting out on strike and demanding it, they subordinate the whole trade union movement effectively to getting Labor elected. And, you know, what does that, what's that going to deliver for workers? You just have to look at the election campaign to see not much. Yeah. And um, even with the, the vote Labor campaign, like it's, become even more obscure in Victoria at least with the choice of um, the core flutes that the that the Trades Hall campaigners are putting around. This is ScoMo in his Hawaii outfit. Mm. doesn't say vote Labor, just says kick out the Liberals. And you're like, come on. Like <laughs> you can't even but make that, a positive That is Labor's right. campaign. You know, Scott Morrison's yeah. a creep. Like that's pretty much the – the key message of their campaign and we don't need to be told by anthony albanese you know it takes one to know one when it comes to creeps i think we don't need to be told by him that morrison's a creep everyone recognizes that but what we want is someone better and labor think that they can just coast through not being quite as um have as much of their creep credentials on record as the liberals who have been in government but this is not offering people anything and you know people are genuinely concerned about their economic future being able to provide um maintain their standard of living provide for their kids like it's not yeah it's just a joke what labor's offering but mm. you know and there's no one saying well we need to never mind about labor we need to be fighting ourselves on the ground you know the unions should and could be saying that but they're not so it's a, yeah it's terrible and i think it's um you know when we thinking about the cost of living and the choices that people have to make, like this is the barbarity of capitalism, that once you don't earn enough money to cover the cost of your rent, your weekly shopping bill, the petrol for your car to drive your kids to school, like some decision has to be made by you. It's your responsibility to choose which of those things you don't have because you can't afford to pay for it or to get into an increasing level of debt, which is massive in Australia, like huge levels of um, personal debt that people have. So yeah, I mean, the whole thing, like, do you uh, cut out a meal a day, which is what people do in Australia, like millions of people actually live under the poverty line, and that nobody talks about any of those things. 
play of the revolution as Damien Martin. On the same note, in terms of the Labor campaign against the Liberals and, you know, the, the line that they seem to have been trying to say to the media is like nine years, the Liberal government is tired out and they've, you know, they've had enough and we're, we're ready to take over is basically it, um, is that they can then uh, blame the Liberal government's nine years in power for all sorts of things. And one of them, bizarrely, that came up recently um, in the seat that I'm in in Cooper that Kath Larkin, the Victorian Socialist candidate, told me was that Jed Carney, the Labor candidate here, blamed nine years of Liberal governments for the problem of climate change, um, which seems a stretch. Uh, And, Ellie, I wanted to talk about climate change because you've been involved in campaigning around this um, for, for a long time, and so have we all. Uh, another issue really that I think um, we're talking about more radical revolutionary change to deal with that, even if the Greens and their ambition to win the balance of power. Is there any hope for solving the problems of climate change through this election or Australian politics generally? Well, I think the starting point for uh, looking at this issue is the scale of the crisis that we're facing. And we all know this by now, like the oceans are rising, the climate's warming, there's a biodiversity crisis, we're living through a mass extinction of species. Um, and here in Australia, we've already started to suffer uh, the terrifying consequences of climate change. Just in the last three years, we've lived through the catastrophic black summer bushfires. Uh, and then this year, I'm, I'm in New South Wales, and the first few months of this year we're dominated by these horrific floods that have just destroyed thousands of people's lives across the state and across Queensland. Uh, and as socialists, we know that this is all really caused by one thing uh, and one thing alone, which is capitalism, a whole system that prioritises profits above absolutely everything else, uh, including maintaining a stable relationship between human societies and the environment. And this has been going on for, you know, a lot longer than nine years. Scientists have been raising the alarm bells about catastrophic climate change for decades and decades and decades. And not just in Australia, but all around the world, uh, every political party has refused to do anything uh, to actually tackle uh, the problem at the heart of it. And in this election, um, it's an absolute joke. Like, I won't go through the Liberals. We know what their climate policy is like. Uh, but Labor's no better. So they've also committed, like the Liberals, to uh, net zero by 2050, which I think by this point is just a running joke amongst the ruling class because of how utterly meaningless it is. Uh, and recently, um, Albanese launched Labor's new climate policy called the Safeguard Mechanism Plan. Uh, you know, meaningless even in name, which in short is just more creative accounting like the emissions trading scheme. So just another mechanism to essentially allow giant corporations to keep pumping out fossil fuels into the atmosphere uh, and not to mention the Labor Party's ongoing support for the coal industry in Australia. So no hope lies with them. 
And then I think some people are kind of flailing around looking for an alternative in this election and falling down in a couple of different places. So one is the, we call it, in, here in Sydney, we call them the teal independents. I'm not sure if they're teal in Melbourne, but it's yeah, a bunch yep. of, yeah, a bunch of candidates who are contesting uh, liberal seats, um, but the independent candidates themselves are liberals just by another name. So here the big one at the moment is Allegra Spender. She's contesting the wealthiest electorate uh, in Australia in Sydney's eastern suburbs and they've garnered some interest because they talk about climate policy but it's more of the same, more of the same of what the Liberals and Labor talk about, pro-business, pro-market and, and utterly ineffectual. And then like you mentioned there's also the Greens who yes do sometimes have better policies but it is far, far, far short of what is needed. And I don't think we should have any faith in some kind of progressive coalition. We saw that in 2010, Greens entered into a coalition government with the Labor Party and nothing changed. It was one of the most right-wing uh, Labor governments of any that I can remember. So, you know, contrary to that, I think we've seen uh, a hint of what could be in recent years, like in 2019, mass climate protests, youth-led rebellions uh, all around the world. And that's really the kind of stuff we should be uh, turning to and trying to rebuild rather than hoping any of this is going to be solved at the ballot box this month. Yeah. Okay. So let's go from one existential crisis to another, literally. Um, so climate change. If climate change is not going to uh, kill us all before we smash capitalism, then... Um, the potential for war seems to be ramping up in this election. I think uh, it's starting to heat up a little bit around this issue of um, the role of China in the Pacific region, the Solomon Islands that people have um, been reading about. And I think this is one of the areas where the Liberals think they can um, beat Labor on national security. How concerned should we be about this one, Louise, in terms of uh the role of capitalism in, in this election. Is that a question to me, Roz? Yeah, it is. Um, well, yeah, I think the backdrop of this is the war in Ukraine that has gone from these sort of tensions in the world system being at a quite abstract level to being much more real, that there's a, actually a shooting war now going on that although um, NATO, the US, the West are not directly involved, um, you know, the significance of it is very much, you know, these powers that are trying to challenge Western dominant, Western military and economic dominance are showing a, a bit more willingness to really take the fight up to the kind of prevailing superpowers that currently dominate the world. And that raises, and you know, although, you know, Russia is one of those powers, but the key one, the, the most, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the biggest one is China an economy 10 times that of Russia. Um, and so, you know, what it's sort of a portent of is the inevitable confrontation that, that will come eventually between the US, the reigning uh, superpower, and China, which is on the rise and represents a real threat. Not a huge military threat yet, but clearly, you know, that at some point there's going to be open confrontation between those two. Um, and I think... The, the war in Ukraine has made that seem much more um, pressing and real than it has been in the past. And that's meant 
you know, people may have noticed the complete dropping of any concern about terrorism and no one mentions the Middle East anymore because of the disastrous military adventures there that, um, you know, the US has brought to an end mainly because they were discrediting for the US military and not really the main game anymore. The main game is gearing up the US and its allies to take on China, which is the, the real um, uh, threat. Um, and so, you know, we never, we don't hear anything anymore about terrorism. That's not what justifies massive military spending. It's now all about preparing to take on China and hence the other um, concern or Labor using the um, fact that Australia has ceded sort of their special relationship in the Solomon Islands um, to China and that being uh, agreed as a disastrous sort of um, mistake from that point of view. Um, and it's... I think reflected a little bit in the Ben Robert Smith trial as well, like in the kind of uh, mad comments from Peter Dutton, which is that all this snamby-pamby sort of the military is meant to be nice and the military needs to have a nice policies towards involving women and minority groups. No, the, the military needs to be prepared to kill people and we need to be, tolerate whatever atrocities they get up to in the name of Australia prevailing against its enemies. I think that's some of the significance of the Ben Robert Smith trial and while the right-wing media has swung so hard behind what is clearly, in my opinion, a person who was a war criminal, and that there's been a massive um, increase in defence spending, I think 7.4% in the last budget, much more than much healthier increase than any of the much-needed you know, health education, et cetera, um, portfolios, and a huge amount of that going to... Um, uh, the cyber intelligence, which is seen as the front line of taking on China. And then there's obviously beefing up the relationships of, um, between the US and uh, its allies. So from Australia's point of view, it's also about wanting more US involvement in this region, but also from the US's point of view, taking on China, they need to firm up their allies. So the AUKUS deal for the nuclear power submarines and since the war in Ukraine and uh, intensification of that collaboration, the announcement about development of hypersonic weapons and all underwater robotics, God knows what else, um, that this is really now a matter of not if there's going to be war with China but when and Australian society is more gearing up to be militaristic and prepared for that and that's obviously a huge danger to people everywhere in the world China here, you know, the prospect of such a war, such a confrontation is, you know, a devastating one and should be avoided and we should be opposing war and that drive to militarism and understand that this is what, you know, capitalist system divided up into competing nation states, this is, this is what we get from capitalism and it's a very good argument for why we need a system organised rationally, not based on competition and um, that inevitably leads to military competition. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that terrorism has just disappeared as an issue. I hadn't actually even thought about that, but uh, it's totally true that that would have been pre in previous elections one of the big talking points, as would law and order. That hasn't really been an issue in this election campaign either. Like, you know, we've got to crack down on crime. Like suddenly it's not an issue even though, um, you know, it was just a bullshit thing before but now they obviously don't think they can even get any ground on that um, yeah, well, terrorism was always a beat up and law and order is more of a state thing but law and order is 
really, um, sorry, not law and order, crime has yeah. really dropped off over the course of the pandemic. So, yeah, that's I think that's a problem for governments that want to create the idea of an enemy out there that's not them. Yeah, exactly. Our across the world. So there's some issues that are not being talked about. Um, what should they actually be talking about, Ellie, in terms of the issues that are not really being um, raised through this election? Well, kind of like you and Louise were discussing earlier, life is getting a lot harder for ordinary people in this country. Not everyone. The billionaires here have doubled their wealth during the pandemic, but a lot of other people are suffering. And the everyday issues that could actually have the most profound effect on people's lives, millions of people's lives, um, have barely even got a sideways glance in this election, even if, you know, they might appear in the odd press conference. So I think one thing is housing. Like there's a real housing crisis all around the country now. Um, where I am in Sydney, the average house price is now one and a half million dollars, which it's kind of hard to even comprehend that. I think it's not far below in Melbourne and neither party is offering any kind of anything that could start to deal with that crisis. So I saw the other day that Labor announced a new housing scheme, which is kind of a slap in the face. They've offered a funding pool of $390 million, which will you know, somehow be partially doled out to low income earners. But like I said, the average price is one and a half million dollars. So 390 million might help a few thousand, few hundred families at most. So essentially they're offering nothing. There's other things as well, like education. Here, um, here the teachers have been going on strike this year. There was a teacher strike in New South Wales just yesterday because there's a pretty dire crisis developing in schools. Teachers are severely underpaid. They're really overworked. Uh, they're really understaffed. And again, no one's offering a you know sweeping plan to fix public education in this country. Same with higher education. Fees have been going up for years and years. Funding's been decreasing per student. None of that's going to change. And then I think a big one is welfare. Like we briefly saw welfare payments go up at the start of the pandemic and you know, start to give some of the poorest people in the country, you know, a, an income that can offer even just a little bit of dignity, but it's shot back down to absolute poverty levels. And uh, that's not about to change anytime soon. So I think there are all these problems that people are facing, the social issues as well, you know, incarceration rates of Indigenous people, the crisis in the aged care sector. But instead, what we're getting money for is nuclear submarines, new army bases, nothing that's actually going to make anyone's lives any better. Yeah. And on Indigenous stuff, you know, like the only thing that seems to get a run in the media or that is talked about is the possibility for a referendum at some point in the future about possibility of a treaty based on the ref outcome of the referendum. Nothing, as you say, about massive incarceration rates or poverty or the fact that you can't get clean drinking water in a whole number of remote Indigenous communities in this country that you have to boil the water to make it safe to drink for your kids. Like that's, yeah, again, the silences um, speak volumes, I think, to the state of politics. Louise, do you have a, another unmentionable issue from this election campaign? 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think the other unmentionable is the um, pandemic, which the official line is the whole thing's over. We don't need to worry about it anymore. Um, but that belies the reality, which is that the pandemic is worse now than it's ever been before. So the combined deaths of 2022, which we're not even halfway through yet, um, of just over four and a half thousand is more than the entire death toll up to the beginning of 2022 of, during the whole pandemic, mm. which was only 2,239. So it's more than double in the, in the first few months of this year. Um, and yet this has been the same and, time. And in- the leading cause of death in Australia is COVID. Yes, well, 30 to, 30 to 50 people dying a day, that was, uh, out of the average number of people who die in Australia every day, I think is about three 350. So, yeah, if that's that would be the biggest single cause of death, that's about yeah. 10%. Um, uh, and yet the official policy coming from government is we no longer discuss, it's as though it doesn't exist and wherever possible restrictions are being lifted. So there's barely any restrictions in place anymore um despite you know case numbers the growth in case numbers in australia australia is the fifth worst country in the world for the daily um growth in case numbers so there's this absolute sort of um jar between the actual reality on the ground of people getting covid continuing to die of covid and be sick with it despite the high levels of vaccination and everything else and the absolute uh, lack of concern on the part of um, government. And now they're sort of turning around saying, oh, well, everyone's sick of the pandemic. You know, like we can't, we couldn't reimpose measures even if we wanted to because everyone's moved on. But all the polls showed that the, the, the impetus to move on did not come from ordinary people. Mm. Overwhelmingly, the health measures have been widely supported by ordinary people. The impetus came from governments under pressure from business to get the economy rolling again, to remove all these barriers. People have to go to the shops and to travel and to, you know, spend money and consume um, and, you know, help business. That was what motivated the dropping of all these restrictions. And then once people say, well, it's hopeless because, you know, the, the government doesn't want to do anything to protect you, you may as well give up, then people adapt to that new reality. But actually people never wanted it. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's ha, ha, has terrible consequences for people. Um, and so I think, yeah, but the fact that the governments and the, like no political party will talk about it or make it an issue, despite the fact it's, you know, it's killing people every day. I mean, it's a bizarre, bizarre situation and really, um, relies on us being indifferent to this loss of human life, which I think is pretty messed up um, and I think it's just one example of the gulf between the huge challenges and problems that human society is facing like this pandemic's been bad enough but it shows the vulnerabilities to future ones and it shows that pandemics are quite possible um, you know the existential crisis that is the climate disaster that you know we may not human species may not be able to exist in the foreseeable future and yet, you know, politicians are, you know, concerned with propping up the coal industry and making sure people are going into cafes in the CBDs for lunch and all this absolute inanity. 
and I think yeah that's there's something wrong with the society we live in when that's that's what's going on around us yeah it's totally emperor's new clothes territory of like just Mm. don't mention it um and it'll go away but it's like you could you if there was a political lead given by uh you know a figure or organizations that are big enough to get attention on something like um you know massive funding injection for pandemic research like let's make a whole dedicated like fucking university that just studies disease and disease prevention, infection, blah, blah, blah. Massive funding for the healthcare system to be prepared. But no, it's just like, no, I think we'll just scrape by and fingers crossed you don't all die because there's a horrible variant coming. Um, We'll worry about that or not when it happens. It's just like this is the, you know, level of regard that the system has for human life. It's like none, not not at all unless you're rich. Um. So, Ellie, let's finish with this. Wh- where is there any hope in any of this? It's all, it's, we've painted a bleak <laughs> picture. So, uh, if you listen to this, yeah, thinking, fuck that. I hate all of those politicians. I'll vote for the Victorian Socialists, but like, seriously, what hope is there? Yeah, we have painted a pretty dire picture of Australian politics, but I don't think that all hope is lost. Um, well, one thing is the Victorian Socialists. I listened to the the uh, podcast, the session you did last week with some of the candidates, and I think for anyone living in Victoria, that's a way to kind of cut through the dire state of Australian politics today, you know, help out a, a group who actually want to put people before profit. They're trying to use this election as a, you know, way to fight for the oppressed, not fight for the interests of big business and so on. So for the you know, lucky residents of Victoria, there's something quite immediate that you can get involved in. But then beyond that, like I'm I'm a revolutionary socialist, so I don't think that parliament and elections are the be-all and end-all of politics. I think there's a whole bunch of other ways that we can fight to um, try actually raise the issues that ordinary people care about, to try claw back some space from the Labor Party and the Liberal Party you know, I mentioned the big protest movements of a couple of years ago. I think one of the big dangers of this election is that the Liberals lose. Everyone kind of rightfully breathes a sigh of relief that Morrison is finally gone. But then the Labor Party get an extended honeymoon period where um, no one's fighting, even though we know that Labor's going to offer us absolutely nothing. So hitting the streets, the strikes that have happened uh, in the public sector over the past couple of years. This is, uh, this is all, you know, immediate stuff that people get involved, can get involved in. But then again, beyond that, I think we need to start thinking about a serious alternative to what capitalism has on offer for us now. I think we need to look at the, the big picture and see that tinkering around the edges of capitalism uh, will always be a fool's errand uh, and we need to start putting socialism back on the agenda. So that's what we, you know, that's what we try to do through Red Flag. It's what the socialist alternative branches around the country are doing. So if anyone listening to this wants to check that out, then I'd really encourage you to do so. Yep. And if you want a refreshing alternative voice to the mainstream media, obviously you're listening to this podcast. So thank you for being here listening to this. But if you haven't read the newspaper or got a subscription to Red Flag, then that's something as well you can do to support an unequivocally anti-capitalist voice um, 
on the Australian political landscape. We may be a small voice, but, you know, the more that you can share episodes like this around or other episodes of the podcast, the more subscribers we can build up um, to the newspaper, the more people who get active in politics is our only way of trying to turn things around. Louise, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, well, just that, I mean, Labor could still snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, but it looks likely that we're going to have a Labor government. Um, and I don't think that's going to rock anyone's world very much. If anyone's been politically conscious through any of the Morrison government, they've had some practice at what it's like to live under a Labor government as well. But one of the things that can be different under Labor is that some of the um, organisations that are on a um, are prepared to fight the Liberal a Liberal government that recognise the Liberal Party as their enemy can be a lot less inclined to challenge um, a Labor government. Um, and so that can be a challenge while Labor's in power. But then the flip side of that is for a lot of like ordinary people um, who, for whatever reason, expect something better from a Labor government, they can be more outraged when Labor continue basically the same agenda of the Liberals. So there can be you know opportunities for um, organising and um, campaigning about various issues under a Labor government as well, but we can't necessarily expect the same level of institutional support from the unions and various social justice kind of organisations which are much more tied to the Labor Party and don't jump at the chance to undermine a Labor government. Yeah. And so, that's, I think, an argument for independent revolutionary left-wing organisation that's not tied to major parties that's prepared to fight for workers and the oppressed regardless of who's in government um, and because they recognise it's who's in government doesn't actually make society all that much different. We need a different type of society. We need to be against capitalism and the whole premise on which this society is based. Yeah. So that idea from the climate movement of no one's coming to save us but us is very much applicable when we look at the terrain of electoral politics in Australia and um, and all of the issues that we've talked about here today. So thank you for your work as editors of Red Flag, Ellie and Louise, and for being guests on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks. And we will continue to organise uh, resistance because uh, you're listening to Red Flag Radio and we have a world to win. <laughs>